Thanks, Leo, very much. And thank you all for being here. It's a real uh, pleasure for me to be here. My talk today is drawn from my work on a 2007 exhibition at the Bruce Museum in Greenwich, Connecticut, called Painterly Controversy, William Merritt Chase and Robert Henry. And here you see two self-portraits. Chase is on the left and Henry is on the right. And the exhibition I worked on examined the contentious relationship between the two men during the period when they taught together at the New York School of Art. Since some of their students would go on to become important modernists, such as uh, George Bellows, Stuart Davis, Edward Hopper, Georgia O'Keeffe, Marston Hartley, and Charles Sheeler, the nature of their conflict holds a particular importance. Their arguments over the nature and future of American art affected an entire generation of young artists and marked a moment of transition from the American Impressionism that was considered the vanguard in the late 19th century to the urban realism uh, that Leah was talking about, known as the Ashcan School, that became the avant-garde in the early 20th century. Now, in late November of 1907, newspapers in New York trumpeted a controversy that had the art world in an uproar. And headlines included, uh, Artist Chase Leaves, Withdraws from the New York School of Art, which he founded. Another was uh, Chase Nettled, Leaves Art School he founded. And finally, uh, the image you see here, William M. Chase forced out of New York Art School, Triumph for the New Movement, led by Robert Henry. William Merritt Chase was one of the country's foremost portraitists, a proselytizer of European technique, and a renowned teacher whose pupils numbered in the hundreds. And in 1902, Chase invited the young Robert Henry, who was 16 years his junior, to teach at the New York School of Art. And Henry seemed to be a natural choice at the time. Uh, at that time, he, at the time that he came to teach at the New York School of Art, he and Chase painted in similar styles and they admired each other's work. And Henry's work at this time had a great deal in common with Chase's style and that of his acclaimed contemporary and sometime friend, James McNeil Whistler. And here you see on the, on the far left, Chase's portrait of Whistler from 1885. And there's a great story behind that. In the interest of time, I can't tell you, but maybe we'll get a chance to talk about it later. Um, in the middle is Whistler's Lady in the Yellow Buskin from 1882 to 84. And on the right is Henry's Young Woman in Black of 1902. And you can see the stylistic links between the three artists in the elongated vertical format, in their free, spontaneous handling, and the very muted palette. And I have to apologize in advance because some of these portraits are, are very subtly painted. And while they can be wonderful to see in person, they don't always reproduce well. Now, Henry lauded Chase's portraits that were included in the 1894 Society of American Artists and the 1902 National Academy of Design exhibitions in New York. In 1897, the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts gave Henry his first solo exhibition. And Henry proudly wrote to his parents that Chase had visited the show and praised his paintings. And Chase asked Henry to lend his work to a show that Chase was organizing at the New York School. Uh, further to this, in 1902, a friend of Henry's, the landscape painter Edward Redfield, reported that Chase had called one of Henry's paintings at the Pennsylvania Academy a corker. And uh, Henry must have valued the compliment a great deal because he recorded it in his, uh, in his diary. So you can see that early on, the two artists thought very highly of one another. Now, both were dedicated teachers. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the things they had in common. 
Both were dedicated teachers, and between the two of them, they guided literally thousands of pupils over the course of their careers. And both were also identified as realists. During the late 19th and early 20th centuries, realism was identified with modernism, but it was also tied to a tradition that reached back to 17th century painters Diego Velazquez and Franz Halls, and their 19th century disciples, Edward Manet and James McNeil Whistler. And Chase and Henry both held all these artists in high esteem. And here you see on the left Chase's tribute to Velazquez. This is called uh, an Infanta, a souvenir of Velazquez. And it's actually a painting of his daughter, whose, whose name was Helen Velazquez Chase. Uh, and on the right is Henry's stylistic homage in his portrait of John Sloan. And you have a very similar looking, uh, very nice self-portrait of Sloan upstairs. And here's another pair that shows their shared admiration of Franz Halls. On the left is Chase's self-portrait as Colonel Johann Claeson Liu of 1903. And this is taken directly from a part of a painting at the Franz Halls Museum. And on the right is Henry's Celestina of about 1908, which shows very Halsian exuberance and freedom of brushwork. Now, both men had carefully cultivated larger-than-life personas, and both were active in New York's uh, art organizations and were vocal in their views, making shrewd use of the media. And most important, Chase and Henry were considered the country's most influential art teachers. And never before had two American teachers claimed such a breadth of influence through both their students and their national fame and taught together at the same institution. Both artists claimed to be modern and attempted the difficult task of teaching what they considered to be the most advanced art. However, their paths quickly diverged. They differed on two fundamental issues, the importance of technique and what constitutes a proper, an appropriate subject. And these two ideas of technique and subject are um, things I'm going to be coming back to again and again. And this is easy to see when we look at their paintings. Now, you see these are both by Chase. On the left is a beautifully painted scene of private summer leisure at Shinnecock on Long Island. And on the right is a sunny, genteel view of New York called an early stroll in the park. Chase came of age in the 1870s and 80s, and after mastering his accomplished brushwork during his studies in Munich, he quickly adapted his technique to the Impressionist style that was growing in popularity among American artists. And on the left is uh, Hassam's Poppy's Isles of Shoals from 1891. And on the right, I'm sure is familiar to you, uh, Theodore Robinson's Sunlight and Shadows from 1896. And artists such as Hassam and Robinson studied in the traditional academies of Paris uh, during, during the fall and the spring. And in the summer, they worked in the countryside using the bright palette and the broken brushwork of the French Impressionists. And by the early 1880s, the Impressionist style slowly became more popular in the United States. And this is a sharp contrast that you see here with Henry's paintings of a few decades later. Uh, on the left is Far Rockaway of 1902. And on the right is East River Embankment of 1900. And Henry was developing new ideas about realism. Just around the time he started teaching at the New York School of Art, he began to take his subjects from the harsher realities of city life, unlike Chase's beautiful view of Central Park that you just saw. And he cared little for draftsmanship or technique. Henry had begun to advocate the gritty urban subjects that would characterize the movement known as the Ashcan School. 
And of course, Chase found Henry's uh, dour subjects highly objectionable. And their debate was only intensified by the two artists' diametrically opposed personalities. Henry's intensity and earthiness clashed with Chase's fastidious elegance as the younger artist encouraged his students in manly roughhousing behavior that offended the elder statesman's sense of decorum. The tensions between the two escalated until 1907 when Chase left, or perhaps was driven from, the school that he had founded. Now their argument over the relative merits of technique and subject was essentially a dispute over the evolving parameters of realism and by extension of modernism. Chase and Henry both thought of themselves as realists, but their definitions of the term were quite different. And contemporary critics recognize that uh, such terms are difficult to pin down. And here's an example of Chase's famous fish still lifes. A, a contemporary article about these paintings included the comment that um, the terms of art are all wrong because they were created to make things easier rather than to make them more accurate. Most are casual epithets created by catalogers and flung at others by wags. And another contemporary critic, Frank Jewett Mather, observed, the trouble with the word realism is that it must always be followed by the question whose. And then the word begins to split up. And that's what's happening here. The terms realism and modernism became very slippery and their meanings changed during this transition. Now I'd like to take a moment to talk about art education in New York during this period to give you some idea of the backdrop behind this little drama that we're following. Uh, the two men's careers, Chase's and Henry's careers, spanned a burgeoning art education movement in the United States. Throughout the early 19th century, American artists had complained about the lack of options for training in fine art in their own country, and many went abroad, studying in London, Dusseldorf, Munich, and Paris. And during the late 1870s, young expatriate artists trained in Europe, like Chase, began to return and teach, and here he is with his class in 1897. So in the Chase School, uh, there were no entrance requirements, and anyone with a basic grasp of drawing could join the painting class. And this policy was considered radical, since traditionally, admission to the painting class was only granted to advanced students upon approval. And even 10 years later, the New York Herald still expressed shock at this revolutionary program. And here's their quote. Nobody except a Chase pupil would dare become a figure painter without first undergoing the traditional academy training uh, drawing from cast and from life. Chase imbued his classes with a sense of inspiration and gravity. His student, F. Usher Duvall, explained, this is, these are his words, there's a little sense of reserve or class strictness, but a well-meant sternness. Now, decorum reigned in Chase's talks and lectures. He actually discouraged debate and disagreement, and he asked students to submit any questions to him in writing beforehand. Uh, an early biographer of his named Catherine Roof described the mindset that put Chase so completely at odds with Henry. She remembered him saying, I would cross the street any day to avoid a man who differs with me on the subject of art and insists upon discussing it. So in spite of his grave demeanor, many of Chase's students remembered him as a warm and supportive teacher. And Chase himself declared with obvious affection, I believe I am the father of more art children than any other teacher. And some of his better known students were Georgia O'Keeffe, Marsden Hartley, Joseph Stella, Charles Sheeler, and Gifford Beale. 
and he sometimes provided tuition for students who could not afford it. He helped place their work in exhibitions so often that uh, his colleagues actually criticized him for it. And what might have mattered most to his pupils, he bought their paintings and hung them in his studio, including the early work of several who departed from his teachings and, in fact, later became allied with Henry's Ashcan School. And one example of one of those students was um, Everett Shin, and here's your wonderful vaudeville act from 1902-03. At the same time, Chase was famous, or perhaps notorious, for his classroom criticism sessions. One pupil noted that, uh, quote, to the sincere student, he is unfailingly the kind master, willing and anxious to give everything he can to help them on their way. But this student conceded that, uh, as a critic, he is severe when occasion requires, but seldom harsh unless the work of some laggard student whom he considers to be taking up art as a mere pastime comes under his notice. Then the vials of wrath will descend. And indeed, Chase's cutting remarks became legend. And these are some stories that I heard again and again in my research. When Chase admitted to a young female student that he didn't understand the extreme color she was using, she explained to him, oh, but I felt that way, Mr. Chase. And he disdainfully replied, Madam, the next time you feel that way, don't paint. And uh, here's, here's another. Um, Chase once asked a student uh, how he was getting along in the class. And uh, on the student's response, fine, sir, fine. Chase answered, Quite the contrary, I assure you, sir. So uh, for this reason, the young painter Walter Pock wrote in his diary on one of Chase's summer classes, first criticism, people scared. And so now we're going to move on to Henry's teaching. And here you see one of his life classes in 1903. And Henry is right there at the center of the front row. And I should point out that although I'm showing you two images of men's classes, both Chase and Henry taught great numbers of women as well, and they really took them very seriously and encouraged them to pursue professional careers, which was pretty unusual for the time. Henry's students and, uh, and fellow artists remembered his personality very vividly. And here's the work of one of his students, Guy Pen Dubois, from your own collection. Uh, Dubois recalled Henry's teaching as a shocking contrast to Chase's. And he described Henry's first entrance as a teacher into the New York School of Art. Henry was, uh, was teaching a class with a model, which was called a life class. And Dubois wrote, I shall always picture that entrance as a rock dashed, ripping and tearing through bolts of patiently prepared lace. Life certainly did that day stride into a life class. The critic Sadakichi Hartman called Henry violently didactic. And he remarked, or perhaps uh, he was complaining, that Henry, quote, has an argument and an explanation for everything. Uh, Dubois described how Henry set the class in an uproar. These are Dubois' words. He displaced art by life and discarded technique. The talk was uncompromising, the approach unsubtle, the result pandemonium. And uh, Henry's friend John Sloan explained uh, of Henry, his was a dominant personality, deservedly commanding respect and somewhat impatient of ideas that crossed his own. And another fellow artist, William Glackens, added, he always had to be chef de cole. And Glackens meant the term figuratively, but uh, its literal meaning, head of the school, comes very strongly to mind when we consider Henry's time at the New York School of Art.
Now, the pandemonium that uh, Dubois described that Henry created was not just metaphorical, but was physically manifest in, the, in his classroom. Henry admired Theodore Roosevelt's masculine ideal of the strenuous life, and he encouraged roughhousing and joking in the studio, and he admonished his male pupils to, quote, be a man first and be an artist later. And his students took up basketball and boxing, and they even formed a baseball team with Henry's encouragement. And the artist Rockwell Kent wrote about a prank that was played on new arrivals. Uh, one student would enter the classroom and pose as Henry and would praise the new pupil. And this false Henry would then go over and rage at Edward Hopper, another student, about how poor his work was. And of course, this was far from true. Hopper was one of the stars of the class. And Hopper would, would strike the supposed teacher, and the whole class brawled. And the new student would, of course, take Henry's, the false Henry's side, and would get a sound beating from Hopper. And Kent found this joke just endlessly amusing, and he said it never failed. And this type of raucous hazing was just what Chase wanted to avoid. But Henry's popularity might have made objections difficult. As artist uh, C.K. Chatterton observed, almost from the first moment, Henry became the dominant influence in the school. And Henry's students remembered him best for his enthusiastic lectures. A memorial account lauded Henry's ability to arouse students and bring out their best qualities. He made every individual feel that he or she had potential greatness. And indeed, Henry's uh, writings and sayings were compiled and published in a book called The Art Spirit that art students still read avidly up to the present day. And it does include some, some really strikingly inspiring words. One of my favorite quotes is, of his is, I am not interested in art as a means of making a living, but I am interested in art as a means of living a life. And nevertheless, uh, at least a few students had qualms about Henry's tendency to talk in abstractions. Uh, Gifford Beale mused how, quote, his students adored him and listened to him with rapt attention, but some of us thought it strange how little of the talk really sank into your memory after it was all over. And the painter, um, it gets better, um, the painter Mayon Rai Young related that, I used to ask Henry's pupils what he told them, but got little for my trouble. The best explanation was given by Hal Burroughs, who said, oh, he doesn't tell us much. He's a hypnotist. Um, and Henry uh, taught in abstract terms, giving such advice as, um, this is a quote, in your painting, think of the neck, head, and body as having a liking for each other. The parts are joyous in their play together, and an absolute confidence exists between them. But uh, some of his students complained about his neglect of anatomy. Uh, again, we're talking about a neglect of technique, uh, which is part of the big, uh, the big opposition between Chase and Henry. Our friend Guy Pen Dubois, on his first day of teaching his own class at the Art Students League, found among his pupils a fellow student from the Henry class who had been highly regarded there. And uh, Dubois was really astonished to see her. And he blurted out, what the hell are you doing here? And she answered, trying to learn to paint. Now, Henry's criticisms of his students' work were shaped by his idea-driven approach to teaching. He downplayed the technical aspects of painting and encouraged his students to develop their individuality. Unlike Chase, he delivered his criticisms quietly and privately to his students rather than before the group. Hopper recorded this practice, as you can see here, in a really wonderful untitled oil sketch of 1903-06. Henry was lavish in his encouragement, and sometimes uh, even his students thought he was a little too free with his praise. He was known for overusing the, uh, the epithet genius. 
And his students wrote an affectionate parody based on a popular vaudeville song called I Am a Voodoo Man. And I tried to figure find the melody for this, find a recording, and I had no luck, which is probably for the best. So I'm just going to read you their, uh, their parody. It goes, Mr. Henry, for many years, would look at my work and then shed tears. He did not know where he was at. For all of my genius, I couldn't tell that. And the refrain, I am a genius, I am a genius, I am a genius man. Chase's and Henry's personalities as teachers magnified the differing ideals that they taught. Chase was well known and even revered for his mastery of technique. And you can see that in, here in his portrait on the left of content Aileen Johnson. And this is from about 1900. In response to criticisms that he was merely clever, Chase told his students, cleverness means ability. Fine brushwork is equivalent to fine oratory. It is the means by which our thoughts are expressed. And without it, the best work of the artist is lost. And for Chase, the artist's challenge was to conjure beauty from whatever subject he chose. And uh, quote, the only poetry in art is the way the artist applies his pigments to the canvas. A yellow dog with a tin can tied to his tail would have been enough inspiration for a masterpiece by a consummate genius like Velazquez. And Chase encouraged his students to, quote, take the first thing that you see on leaving your door. Anything in nature is good enough to paint. In fact, Chase encouraged his students to try and find the most unusual way of seeing a subject. And he even held contests with this as the goal and awarded one of his sketches as a prize. Now, Henry, on the other hand, considered technique merely a tool, not an objective, and was far more concerned with the subjects his pupils chose. And Henry directed his students, both male and female, to find their subjects in public markets, burlesque houses, theaters, and saloons. And on the right is Henry's portrait of Jessica Penn. And it's really a ravishing painting. It's one of my absolute favorite paintings. But it's a less than respectable subject for the period because Jessica Penn was a Ziegfeld Follies dancer. Henry's students included George Bellows and his uh, club night of 1907 is on the left. And Stuart Davis's Consumer Coal Company from 1912 is on the right. Now, in 1906, Henry proudly told a reporter about one of his pupils, Bessie Marsh, from Canada. When she came to him, she drew what he called the regulation pretty studies that they all do. And under Henry's tutelage, she moved to Manhattan's Lower East Side and painted pictures of half-dressed women in a crowded, messy tenement bedroom. And she told Henry of people throwing tomatoes at her easel. And this must have been a galling transformation for Chase to witness. So you can see here two very different approaches to painting, and just as important, two different approaches to teaching the next generation how to paint. And I want to point out um, quickly a little paradox in Henry's work from about this point. Shortly after Henry began teaching at the New York School, he stopped painting urban subjects and concentrated on portraiture, as Chase was doing at the time. But Henry's choice of portrait subjects was uh, quite different from Chase's. Rather than commissioned paintings of the well-to-do, Henry painted romantic portraits of street children and anonymous working people like his uh, Stoker, which you see here. And this is something Henry scholars ponder uh, why he encouraged his students to paint urban scenes just as he stopped painting them himself. Uh, something we don't have a definitive answer to yet. While Henry, when Henry began to teach at the New York School of Art on November 7, 1902, he was poised to take on the art establishment that Chase represented. Early, earlier that year, he had written to his parents. Uh, he says, I really do believe that the big fight is on. 
and I look for a great change in the attitude toward the kind of art that I have been doing in the coming year. And his challenge to, to Chase is summed up in, uh, in a comment that's undated, but I think it fits this period. He says, uh, can't we ever realize that it is not for the old to judge the young, that it is the young who must judge the old? And divisions soon formed between Chase's and Henry's pupils. And here are two contrasting portraits the artists painted of their students. And on the left is Chase's Anna Tracor Lang, and on the right is Henry's portrait of Josephine Nivison, who later married Henry's student Edward Hopper, and it's called The Art Student. And I, I hardly need to elaborate on the, the differences between these. Um, Annie Lang is elegantly dressed in a sumptuous interior. We have no hint of her profession, even though she was quite an accomplished painter. Uh, Henry's portrait shows Joan Nivison. Um, in her painting smock with her brushes hanging down by her side against a very dark background. And it really served as kind of a manifesto for Henry. He um, exhibited it very widely during the period. Now, in December of 1902, a student election was held in connection with a faculty exhibition at the New York School. And some students suggested that Chase and Henry become candidates to determine which one was best liked. And uh, Henry was shocked and furious and put an end to the proposal. But he could not stop students from rallying with increasing fervor behind one teacher or the other. And I'll, I'll say more about that a little later. Now, by 1905, Henry was firmly in ascendance. That year, a complimentary article in the New York World called New York's Art Anarchists focused on Henry's success and his controversial methods. And the writer described Henry's response to his question. This is the writer narrating the scene. Um, how did we accomplish it? Mr. Henry stood in the middle of the big gray-walled studio of the class and smiled slowly, a smile of humor and reminiscence. And his response is, it was a battle. And it's easy for us uh, now to imagine the battle that he spoke of. The tensions between Chase and Henry crested in 1907 when several incidents made Henry a sensational figure in the press. And you can see by the many press quotes that both Chase and Henry were very um, willing to speak to the media and uh, real masters of, of, um, of working with the press. Now, by this time, Henry was closely associated with the New York School of Art. And his activities reflected strongly on the school. And the situation must have aggravated Chase enormously. Uh, the string of controversies began in March of 1907. Henry had just been elected a full member of the National Academy of Design the previous year, and he served on the jury for the Academy's annual exhibition along with Chase. And here, sorry about the black and white, but this is um, Louis Mora's painting, the National Academy Jury of 1907. And Chase is right here with a cigar. And leaning over here is Henry, also with a cigar. Now, Henry watched uh, the jury process as several works by his students and colleagues were admitted, while many others were rejected dismissively. And he tried to persuade the jury to reconsider, but they paid no attention. And in an even greater insult, two of his own paintings were rated with a number two. And this was a qualified acceptance that could be rescinded later, rather than a number one, which was an automatic acceptance. So in protest, Henry withdrew his paintings from consideration. And he intervened even more aggressively at a private opening of the exhibition when he had paintings by his students, uh, Eugene Sprinkhorn and his friend, George Lukes, 
actually inserted into the show. And they were, of course, promptly removed. Um, but uh, this is, of course, your own wonderful Luke's painting, Thompson and Bleecker Streets from around 1905, not the painting that Henry inserted into the show. But it gives you an idea of the radical aesthetic that Henry was trying to introduce at the very conservative National Academy. And of course, a flurry of press coverage followed the incident. Now, Chase's role in the dispute is unknown, but by this time, it seems unlikely that he would have supported Henry. And Henry's troubles with the Academy uh, continued in April when artists were considered for membership. Of 36 candidates for membership, only three were elected. And among those rejected were many of Henry's students and colleagues, uh, such as Arthur B. Davies and Ernest Lawson. And on the top, you see Lawson's spring night Harlem River. And uh, below is Davies' beautiful twilight on the Harlem. Now, once again, Henry took the spotlight in protesting against the National Academy. He told the New York Times, quote, it's not a question of a lot of striving youngsters against a lot of arrived old men. It's a question of good art against bad. Now, immediately after the incident uh, the, with the Academy jury, Henry began planning an exhibition at the Macbeth Gallery in New York to vindicate his views and the work of his colleagues. And it would become one of the most uh, talked about shows in the history of American art. To organize the event, he met variously with Davies, Sloan, Glackens, Lukes, Lawson, and Shin. And this group, along with Maurice Prendergast, was called the Eight. And the exhibition was scheduled for the following February. And this is a picture of Henry's class at a costume party. And it's a little hard to tell, but Henry is in the first row here with his um, with the white eyes. Now, as hostilities grew between Chase and Henry, their students declared their loyalties in intensifying terms. Um, after the National Academy elections, a Chase student named Charles Vazan uh, wrote a letter to a New York newspaper calling Henry, Glackens, and Sloan psychopathic and their subjects ugly. And in a front page article in the New York Daily Tribune, Vazan described seeing Henry shortly afterward at the New York school, and Henry ignored his, uh, his greeting. And according to Vazan, uh, the two argued. Henry called him a liar and a dirty cur, and Vazan struck him on the cheek and invited him to settle their dispute outside, which uh, Henry wisely declined. Now, soon after this, newspapers in New York and other East Coast cities began to promote the upcoming Macbeth Gallery exhibition of the eight, and they anticipated a sensational event that would bring the art establishment to its knees. And here are two examples from that show in 1908. On the left is Glacken's wonderful Chez Can, and on the right is Sloan's South Beach Bathers. And you can see from the subjects um, the, the uh, kind of thing that uh, Chase and his conservative colleagues would have objected to. Um, Shemu Khan shows a woman in a bar setting and South Beach bathers. Uh, these were actually quite racy um, and revealing bathing costumes for their period. And you can see the, the girls and the boys intertwined together. And uh, Chase must have already known that the show would be a very public slap at his ideas about realism and also about what constituted modern art. If he continued to teach at the New York School, he would only be seen as Henry's rival and a standard bearer for the art ideals that Henry publicly denigrated. Unfortunately, no evidence has been found of how Chase and Henry related to each other directly, and they seem to have mediated their dispute through their public statements. So it is possible that they did not discuss their differences face to face, particularly in light of Chase's statement 
um, that I mentioned before, I would cross the street any day to avoid a man who differs with me on the subject of art and insists upon discussing it. So we can't know whether the two ever discussed Chase's departure from the New York school before he left. What is clear is that when he did leave, it marked a schism between two generations of artists and two conceptions of modernism. Newspapers carried the story of Chase's departure on November 20, 20th and 21st of 1907, and all of them pinpointed the rift between him and Henry as the cause. The New York World explained that Chase left, quote, to get away from revolutionary methods which he felt were in direct opposition to the theories and practices which have made him one of the leading artists in America. The revolutionary force which he left behind him is Robert Henry. And Chase told the New York American uh, newspaper, he said, I would not be a party to the reconstruction which was gradually creeping in. And this is a comparison of the two artists painting dancers that shows the continued cross-currents of dialogue between them. Chase's exuberant, haughty Carmencita is a wonderful tour de force of lively brushwork on the left and celebrates the famous Spanish dancer's visit to the United States in 1890. On the right, Henry's sensuous Salome of 1907 is taken from Richard Strauss's controversial opera that audiences found so shocking that it closed after one night on its first presentation in New York. Now this debate went on long after Chase's departure from the New York school as the two artists continued to trade barbs in speeches, articles, and through the press. Chase and Henry did not address each other by name in their public comments, but their intentions were very clear. Uh, Catherine Roof recalled that, quote, before Chase died, he came to inveigh with equal consternation against the sin of meaningless ugliness and inept pretentiousness rampant in the secession art of the hour. In the summer of 1914, Chase contrasted the Impressionists with the Ashcan School in unflattering language. He, he uh, said, a certain group of painters in New York paint the gruesome. They go to the wretched part of the city and paint the worst people. They have the nickname of the Depressionists, as opposed to the Impressionists. Henry addressed Chase in kind. In late 1914, he responded directly to Chase's epithet, uh, Depressionists. He said, quote, a great many of those who have attained certain prominence believe that it is their duty to guard and protect the public from sites which he imagines would be unsafe for the public. It is just this sort of mistaken paternalism that has prevented the world from receiving the messages of some of the greatest and most useful thinkers of all time. And he was surely thinking of Chase in a satirical passage about technique that's reprinted in his book, The Art Spirit, and these are his words. Uh, there are brush handlings which declare more about the painter than he declares about himself. These say plainly, see what vigor I have. Bang, am I not graceful? I'm a devil of a dashing painter. Chase's and Henry's students took up the fight as well, and their ferocity shows that the issues at stake really transcended the two men and were of passionate interest to the next generation of artists. After leaving the New York school, Chase began to teach at the Art Students League, which you see here, and that school became the target of uh, Henry's male pupils. Rockwell Kent recounted his own and probably his fellow students' resentment of the League which he called our sister institution with obvious sarcasm. And he described its grand limestone premises on affluent 57th Street next to the hidebound National Academy of Design. And he observed, 
all that we lacked of structural stability, of space, of elegance, they had. All that we had of genius, we believed that they lacked. And note that he's using Henry's word genius. The baseball team that uh, Henry had encouraged his students to organize challenged the league to a game. And when they were turned down, the Henry students marched on the league and caused a ruckus, accidentally shattering a pane of glass on the building's front door. And the league finally accepted, and fights broke out regularly when the two teams met. Former students describe other brawls between the Henry students of the New York School and the Chase students of the Art Students League. And these fights took place not just on the baseball diamond, but at the schools themselves, where their disagreements were truly based. One student remembered how some classrooms were reduced to a rubble of broken chairs, stools, and easels. And more than one account describes police being called in to stop some exceptionally violent clashes. But they also remembered their satisfaction, the satisfaction they took in their battle scars. Henry student Evelyn Goodman, uh, Helen Evelyn Goodman, felt that, quote, a black eye earned in the crusade against academicism was a badge of pride. And uh, Guy Pen Dubois recalled with elation, here were art students who could glory in bloody noses, point with pride to the black eye of an evangelical dispute with blacker academicism. Now I'm putting up one more pair so that we have uh, something interesting to look at. These are portraits of the artist's wives. On the left is Chase's, Mrs. Chase and Cozy of circa 1895, and on the right is Henry's masquerade dress of 1911. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, press coverage of this ongoing conflict. The press uh, joined in the fray, as well as the students. The names of Chase and Henry came to represent two opposing points of view. And to speak of one or the other was to take a position in a recurring discussion over the roles of technique and subject, as well as their relevance to modern art. In 1912, the magazine Arts and Decoration ran a series of articles entitled Living American Painters, and profiled Henry and Chase consecutively, as if uh, thinking of one brought the other immediately to mind. In 1915, Arts and Decoration announced that the only three men in America, that only three men in America combined good painting with good talking, that is, expounding their philosophies, and two of them were Chase and Henry. They were often compared or used as foils for one another. And another uh, article observed that, quote, Mr. Chase's pupils come up before juries in a perfectly amiable way. But Mr. Henry's are apt to rub the fur of sleepy fine art cats who sit on juries the wrong way. Now, after Chase died in 1916, uh, one might expect the comparisons to lapse, but they persisted. Carlisle Burroughs wrote in the New York Tribune in 1919, it was Henry's originality that gained him the leadership of the progressive painters and placed him in succession to the late William M. Chase as the dominating force within the New York School of Art. A 1921 biography of Henry made an obvious reference to Chase. The artist is not merely one who knows his craft or manipulates his materials with a love for the material itself, and he's talking about Chase. Uh, but an artist is he who best understands the relationship between the various manifestations of intellectual activity. And here he means Henry. And Henry's death in 1929 occasioned even more such comments. But even as writers and critics took up Chase's and Henry's causes, the nature of art and of modernism was changing in ways that further complicated the debate. And I'm going to head toward my conclusion with another moment of transition that came quickly on the heels of Chase and Henry's conflict. 
In the years after Chase and Henry had their falling out, American artists were introduced to radical new movements in Europe. Americans traveling abroad and increasingly at home saw works by Cezanne and Picasso that introduced a new kind of modern art based on abstraction rather than on realism. And Gifford Beale uh, studied with both Chase and Henry, and he noticed that as the years passed, uh, he, he writes, something seemed to happen to Chase, and the same with Henry. They saw the decline of the Manet and Whistler influences and were rather baffled as to what was happening. The Armory Show of 1913 brought the most radical of the new art to New York, Boston, and Chicago, and put a decisive end to both Chase's and Henry's claims to realism as modernism. And here's the iconic painting of the Armory Show, Duchamp's nude descending a staircase number two. Chase was purposely not invited to participate in the Armory Show, even though several of his peers were represented there, including Child Hassam and Theodore Robinson, whose work uh, we saw a little earlier. Henry was a member of the organizing, um, the organizing group for the Armory Show, and he was asked to help uh, gather foreign works for the show. But he refused to help unless he was given full authority, and his uh, demand was turned down. Though Henry was represented with three paintings and two drawings, he had no part in planning the exhibition, so that was uh, a humiliation of its own. And even before the Armory Show opened, the dealer and critic Alfred Stieglitz had predicted that it would mark the two artists' demise. And Stieglitz uh, crowed, here, um, here are his words, oh yes, the Chase School and the Henry Academy will go on doing business at the old stands. Sometimes the dead don't know they're dead. But here I have to uh, disagree with Stieglitz. The impact of Chase's and Henry's teaching was especially pronounced and enduring because of the nature of their conflict. The two men enacted their differences on a national stage before hundreds of students and thousands of members of the reading public. Their controversial performance and the polarized quality of their dispute meant that each of their students from before, during, and after their time at the New York School of Art had to address the issues under discussion and to shape a conclusion in service of his or her own vision. And uh, the modern scholar Betsy Fallman has pointed out that for American artists coming of age in the early 20th century, their teachers provided them with a fundamental language, and modernity came from the students themselves. And in this way, Henry's boldness and openness to new ideas paved the way for students such as Stuart Davis, who you see on the left, to carry Henry's experiments in a new direction. And this is uh, Davis's painting, The Terminal, of 1937, much later in his career on the left. And he employed his own version of abstraction, but he took a subject of urban labor. Now Chase, on the other hand, taught that a modern artist should master the means and methods of painting and see things from a new point of view. His teaching practice has uh, really surprising parallels with the American avant-garde of the early century. Modernity became a rigorous analysis of the means of painting, and unlike the most radical of their European counterparts, American abstract artists from this period generally took an object as a starting point and translated it according to their own vision. And you can see the beginnings of this in the work of Georgia O'Keeffe in her Shell and Old Shingle, number two, um, from 1926 on the right. This is one of a series of still lifes on the same set of objects that she used to experiment with abstraction, just as Chase had encouraged his students to make repeated studies of the same subject and try and see it from a new point of view. In his later years, Henry reflected, there is a new movement, 
There always has been the new movement, and there always will be a new movement. It is strange that a thing which comes as regularly as clockwork should be a surprise. With the passage of his own avant-garde status, Henry recognized the ever-repeating cycles that shape the history of art. And these are his words again. In new movements, the pendulum takes a great swing. Charlatans crowd in, innocent apes follow, the masters make their successes, and they make their mistakes, as all pioneers must do. It is necessary to pierce to the, to the core to get, at the, to get at the value of a movement and not be confused by its sensational exterior. Chase and Henry engaged in a debate that went far beyond the sensational exteriors of their own work and careers. Their students were forced to consider the ideas of two giants of the art world, riding a pendulum as it swung with a force that eventually dislodged them both. Many of their students uh, brought these issues to bear as they developed a new kind of modernism. The legacy of these two artists uh, lies not only in their work, but also in the new paths that their teaching inspired. Thank you.